0: So with all those things in mind, we enter into this continuing conversation with Jesus. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is, you know, probably the most famous sermon ever preached by anyone ever. Uh, and it was on this sort of gentle he- hillside on the Sea of Galilee, but it's really fascinating because Jesus, by his grace and because of um, his divinity and what he came to do, was able to sit on a, on a gentle hillside and sit and shepherd his people but he sort of did it with the scalpel into our souls. He challenged our kingdoms. He challenged the religious leaders. He challenged the influential. He, he got in our business. And if you did your personal worship this week, you know that he got in your business this week because he challenged you to learn to love what God loves. Uh, Our student ministry, they do personal worship with their core leadership team. And some of these kids are brand new Christians and, uh, one of them sent out a text at, at, at one in the morning, Monday morning, and it said, "It said uh, he had read the passage, um, uh, seek treasure in heaven, and he just wrote, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to seek treasure in heaven? Does it mean build a mansion in heaven? Does it mean do good things here and then you get all your worldly desires in heaven, right? You get the mansion with the 2 car garage, and if you're really good, you get the golf cart spot. No, the treasure of heaven is learning to love what God loves. But here, here's where he gets in your business. You got to deal with your money. You got to deal with your money and your stuff and the things that you're anxious about and the things that you're crying to protect. You got to let go of your kingdom to learn to love what God loves. And that's our challenge today. We have a piece of art painted by uh, Tim Foreman, um, a local professional artist here in town. We, months ago, asked him if he would take a passage, this particular passage that I'm about to read to you, and, uh, and create some art for it. He said, well, that's easy. I already did it because when I chose to become a professional artist was when I saw a sunrise after I had read that very passage, and I painted this painting. Painted this painting. And I painted it to remind myself to put God's kingdom before mine. Hear these words of Jesus. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, if you're blind, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. He'll either hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and... Despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither toil nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than a bird? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your life? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. But I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Won't he much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What will I eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all of those things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, here we come. We're stepping back up onto that hillside. And this time we're bringing all of our stuff. All of our money, all of our priorities, all of our belongings, all the things we fret over, we're bringing them with us, that you might teach us how to love what you love so that we know what to do with all these things. In Jesus' name,
1: amen. Amen. Well, this week, I was reading di- different articles on wealth, and I came across an article entitled, Why Are Rich People So Mean? And, uh, and I thought, how could you not, you know, read that? Like, that's, that's amazing. And just before the first service, I knew that was going to be the first thing to come up on the screens. I thought, how weird would it be if somebody walks into the message after I've explained that it's an article, and then they saw that, because they would think that my message is entitled, Why Are Rich People So Mean?, which it's not. But it's a fascinating article. So here's the problem with this article. We read this and immediately all of us start thinking about people who are wealthier than we are, a few of which are probably mean. And we think to ourselves, yeah, why are those people, you know, them, those guys over there, why are they so mean? And here's what we miss. We might not be mean, but most of us here are in fact rich. We just don't think so because we're always looking up. Guys, we live, for example, in the wealthiest country in the world. Not by a little bit, incidentally. So the entirety of the world's worth is estimated to be about $317 trillion. Okay, 98 trillion, or 31% of the world's wealth, resides right here in the United States of America with us. We are a wealthy, wealthy nation, but we're also a wealthy, wealthy people. The median household income worldwide is $9,733. You know what that means? That means if mom works, you, you add her income. And then if dad works, you add his income. If one of the kids work, you add in their income. If grandma or grandpa lives with them and they've got some kind of income, you add that in. You collect up everyone's income in the entirety of the household. You put it all together. Okay, worldwide average, middle class, $9,733. You're feeling richer, aren't you? All of a sudden, you're like, whoo, Maybe I am wealthy. Do you know what the media per capita income is per person in the household? It's $2,920. Compare that with your income. Like if your kid babysits regularly, he or she makes more than that every year. Easily. All right, but maybe you're thinking, okay, that's not fair because we're not really comparing apples to apples here. You know, I mean, we don't live in Haiti. We don't live in maybe a third world country, which incidentally, I mean, if you just think about it for a second, how poor do they have to be in the third world countries to take the median household incomes and the, and the per capita incomes worldwide and bring it down that low? But we don't live there, so let's talk about the United States of America. Okay. So the median income household in the United States is $43,585 per year. Everyone together... That's the annual income. The median per capita income in the U.S. is $15,480. You're still rich, right? Most of you? And maybe you're thinking, okay, but we don't live in rural Indiana, which, not to knock rural Indiana, I'm sure it's a beautiful place, but I'm also sure it's a lot less expensive than it is to live here. We live in the yachting capital of the world. In fact, we're a part of South Florida. If South Florida was itself a country, it would be the 33rd richest country in the world right after Israel, just South Florida. So what is it in Broward County? All right, the media per capita, or I'm sorry, the media household income in Broward County is $56,842. And the median per capita income in Broward County is $28,631. And here's the deal, I just lost some of you. Like some of you are going... No, that's, that's about what I make, or that's maybe more than what I make, you know? So you're kind of middle class, income-wise, in that regard. But for a lot of us here today, we're still feeling pretty wealthy. So the article is entitled, Why Are Rich People So Mean? And it cites all of these different studies that talk about the corrosive effects of wealth. And so, for example, they monitored four-way stop signs, okay? And what they discovered is that people who drove more expensive cars... We're four times more likely to just get to the four-way stop, look at everybody else, and shoot across than people who drove more modest cars. And I'm not going to lie, that was super convicting to me, okay? Like I, I, and I drive, I think I drive a modest car. I mean, I, I have a three-year-old uh, Chevy Colorado, and I got it after I gave to my daughter my 12-year-old Chevy Equinox. So the way that we get rid of cars in this family is literally, no kidding, when the tow truck comes and takes it away. That's it. We sell them for scrap, man. Like, does it work? Yes. Then we keep it. That's, that's the way we do it. My wife drives a 2001 Chevy Tahoe. We're really not that into Chevys. I know that I'm feeling a little self-conscious about that, but, but it still works, and it has new tires. So it's like, I don't know. We can't get rid of this thing, but I got this new truck three years ago, and here's the deal. When you only buy a vehicle like every 10 or 15 years, and you get a new one, oh, man, you love that thing. And I loved my truck. Like no one was allowed to drive it, even Beth, which was a little tense. Okay. She felt a little bit like, you know, shunned by that. And I even, I did something that I never do. It is not in my personality to wash cars. It may be in your personality to wash cars, in which case I have cars. So come wash them. Happy to help you with that. But I just, I don't ever do that. And you know, when your cars are old, it's like, it's, you don't get too motivated to do that but I was washing this thing like every week until one day, about six months in, I wash my truck. I drive to 7-Eleven because I'm going to vacuum out my truck. So I'm vacuuming my truck, and I'm not lying. A guy in a super beautiful, like exotic black Ferrari comes in, and he tries to squeeze in between my truck by the vacuum cleaner and some dude who's at the gas pump, and he takes his mirror off on the side of my truck. Like, and leaves a dent and a scrape and the whole deal. And I got his insurance information and his insurance has been canceled. And I got his personal information and he's from Argentina. And I got his number and I texted him how much it was going to cost to fix it, $533.68. And he's ignored me successfully now for about two and a half years. So the bad news is I still have the dent because I'm too cheap to fix it. And, but the good news is I haven't washed my truck since. So I've saved a bunch of time. but I'm a nightmare at the four-way stop, except I don't usually run through. I do that, but what I do, and this is probably not appreciated, but I think it should be appreciated. I turn into the traffic cop, so I get to the four-way stop. It's the standoff of who's going to move first, right? And I just go, you know what? You stay, you go. All right, now you go, now you go. I'll go last, but I still get there faster, right? I, I mean, I don't know who died and made me the traffic cop, but but I think it's helpful. Four times more likely if you drive a nicer car to just kind of go, yeah, you people wait, I'm, go- I'm out, I'm going. They posed as pedestrians at these same four-way stops. 100%, I don't even know how that happens, 100% of the more modest vehicle drivers waited for the pedestrian to cross in front of them. 46.2% of the exotic car drivers Shot across the intersection, even after making eye contact with the pedestrian. Like, you know what? You're s- stay there, little man, and I'm off. It's crazy. They took a computer game and they rigged it so you cannot win the game. And they found that wealthy people were far more likely to lie and say they actually won the game that's unwinnable than the poor people. We... Because we are the wealthy people, we're discovered to be more likely to lie in negotiations, to excuse unethical behavior. I love this. They took a jar of candy and they put it in somebody's office, and then they put a sign on the jar of candy that said, Whatever candy is left over, you know, after you, our clients, take of the candy, is going to be donated to a local school nearby. Guess who ate the candy? It was not the poor people. They took these devices that were able to measure, like, your brain activity and and could measure your levels of empathy, and they put it on wealthy people, and then they put it on poor people, and then they measured the empathy as they showed them pictures of kids with cancer. And it wasn't that the wealthy people were not empathetic, it's just that they were strikingly less empathetic and found, in addition in other studies, to be far less generous. If you make $25,000 a year or less, on average, you give away 4% of your income. If you make 150000 a year or more, on average, you give away 2.7% of your income. And part of the reason for that, I think, is because wealthy people tend to feel like they're poor. And the reason that we tend to feel like we're poor is because we're only ever looking up. We're only ever comparing ourselves with people who have more than us. We're never also looking down. We never pull out these kind of statistics. We never go, wait, wait a minute. If I'm going to get an accurate picture of this, I need to compare myself like with everyone, right? With those who make less than me, with those who make more than me. And when we do that, it's pretty astonishing because we're in the top 25% or the top 20% or the top 5% or the top 1% or the top 1% of the 1%. And yet we still feel like we don't have enough. We're not the wealthy people. They quoted a guy from California in this article. His net worth is $10 million. Here's what he said. He said, everyone around here looks at the people above them. You're nobody here at $10 million, which is one of the reasons why we ignore the poor. We ignore and even resent the poor because our self-worth is all wrapped up in our net worth. That's why. And then when somebody comes and asks us for money, whether it be for the poor, for anything at all, what are they doing? Well, without realizing it, what they're doing is they're attacking our sense of self-worth. They're attacking our own personal value. They're attacking our identity because our identity is in how much we have. They're not asking us for money. They're asking us for some of that. And more than that, I think that we ignore and even resent at times the needs of other people and and the needs of the poor because we've also tied up our security in what we have. So this person is not just asking me for money. This person is asking me for my security. They're a threat to my security because what I'm really trusting in for my security is what I have. And so here's what we do. And we don't do this consciously. It's not like anybody sets out to get to this place. But what we do is we develop the psychological scar tissue necessary frankly, to begin to ignore people's requests and conditions. We grow insensitive. And we do it purely from self-protection. And then apparently, as we grow less sensitive to their needs, you know, we start running through four-way stops and ignoring pedestrians. Hey, little man, you stay there. It's my turn. I know I got here last. It doesn't matter. I have somewhere to be. I'm somehow more important interesting. And where does the scar tissue develop? Because it's the part of us, guys, that Jesus has been after all the way through this Sermon on the Mount. He's not after our behavior. This isn't a give more sermon. He's after our hearts. You know where it develops? It develops there. And if you're wondering whether or not he's talking about the heart, he clears it up. Listen again to what he says, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because this actually makes a lot of sense. Like if there is a God, if there is a heaven, if all of these things are real, this is brilliant. Don't lay it up for yourself on earth. Why? This is a place where it corrupts. This is a place where you can be swindled out of it, where it can be stolen from you, where it can rust and be destroyed and all of these things, where you may lose what you're storing up and where you will by death lose 100% of all of your earthly belongings, guaranteed. So Jesus says, well, guys, that doesn't even make any sense. So don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of that stuff happens. They don't go up and down in value and subject to the, the fickle whims and passions of men. Moth and rust do not destroy. Thieves do not break in and steal. And where, when you get there, you'll have them for forever as opposed to this tiny little sliver of time that is our lives here. And then he gives us the punchline. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is he saying? He's saying that what you do out here with your treasure, I'm storing it up on earth or I'm storing it up in heaven, reveals what you really treasure in here. It's all about the heart. And because it's about the heart, he goes on to talk about the eye. Why? Because one of the most alluring things in all the earth is wealth. And it's alluring because of what it promises. It promises significance. Like people are going to go, Wow, you're pretty amazing. Look at what you've been able to accumulate. It promises security. Wow, you're going to be able to insulate yourself against 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 this and against this and against this and against this and against this. Awesome. It promises happiness because it feels like if I have this and I have this and maybe if I have a couple other things, I'll finally be satisfied and I'll finally be happy. And it delivers on none of those things. Why? Because the guy with 10 million is always looking at the guy with 20 or 30 or 100 or 150. And as a result of only looking up, he feels poor and insecure And so he just keeps chasing more, sometimes at the expense of his marriage or sometimes at the expense of his relationship with his kids, sometimes at the expense of his ability to spend any time at all with the Lord. He is spiritually deprived. He is emotionally injured. Sometimes at the expense of his health, he does these things. He's chasing more, even at the expense of his ability to stop and enjoy some of what the Lord has blessed him with. And the problem is that he, that I, that you don't see it talks about the high. Why? Because wealth makes us blind. It blinds us to the needs of other people already talked about this, but it blinds us to ourselves and to the corrosive effects of wealth in our own lives and in our own hearts. It blinds us to our own greed. I'll just use myself as an example. I mean, total transparency. The greedy guy is always somebody else, isn't he? Oh, that guy's greedy. Oh, those people are greedy. That guy is super greedy. Okay, well, maybe he is. Maybe he's even more greedy than me. But does that mean I'm not greedy? Because the logic doesn't work. I was thinking this week, I've been in a number of accountability groups over the years. So, like, you know, you gather together with two or three other guys. You meet regularly. Maybe it's weekly. Maybe it's monthly. And you go deep with these people like Kona Silence, total transparency. We've created lists of questions that we ask each other about marriage and about, you know, work ethics and about sex and all of this stuff. It involves technological devices that monitor where you go on your phone and on your computer and on your tablets and on your television and all of these things. If you go anywhere suspicious, these guys know they'll call you out on it. You get it? Like you're inviting scrutiny into your life on purpose because you know, hey. It's good to be scrutinized in these areas. All right, well, it never occurred to me until this week that we've never once had any questions regarding wealth. Not one, notwithstanding the fact that Jesus spends 15% of his teaching teaching on this topic, notwithstanding the fact that he talks more about the heart and money than he does heaven and hell combined. Like it just never occurred to us to go, all right, guys, so here's the deal. We're going to preach the gospel to each other here for a second, okay? We're going to remember that we have value because Jesus has valued us. We're going to remember that we're secure because God has promised to meet our needs. We're going to take our egos and we're going to put them outside of the room so we're not jealous and envious of one another. And we're going to ask questions like, how much money do you make? What what are you you buying with it? Let's talk about the last month. Wait a minute, so you bought that like... Why did you buy that? Why didn't you get a lesser model? Why did you How is this affecting your ability to invest in heavenly treasure? What's your net worth? What should your net worth be? Like when are you going to cap out? How do you justify the number that you're going to cap out at? Etc, 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 etc. You get the idea? What is it costing you to chase all this stuff? Super uncomfortable. Never occurred to me. Why? It is more private to us than our sex life. Like, there was no area off limits except for this one, and it never even occurred to ask about this one. That's really telling. What it tells me is that I, that you, that all of us on some level really don't want to see when it comes to this topic. And it has been said that the blindest person is the one who refuses to see. And not with the eyes of his head. But with the eyes of his heart. And you say, well, see what? What don't I want to see? Okay, you don't want to see who or what is actually your God. Every human heart has a throne on every throne at all times. (laughs) There is something or someone. And I think we all kind of feel like, well, if I'm resistant to this, it might be because I know what the reality is. And the reality is that the God of my heart is this, and just like I'm threatened by somebody who asks me for money because, you know, it threatens my security or it threatens my significance or something else that I'm looking to this to give me, I don't want to have any kind of scrutiny in this area because that feels threatening to my little God, which is wealth. And Jesus is saying, look, when it comes to God and money, you have to make a choice. Like, you can't go, I'm going to have money and I'm going to have God as my gods. He's like, nope, doesn't work. Verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Then he identifies the two rival masters. He says, you cannot serve God and money for the simple reason that the one, that is to say God, requires you to sacrifice the other, which is your money. Do you know what the Lord says about your treasure, your earthly treasures? The first thing that he says is that they're not yours. It's remarkable. He says it in a variety of places. I'll just give you one. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. What is he saying? He's saying that God owns absolutely everything and that God owns absolutely everyone and if there is in fact a God and if he is in fact the God of the Bible how could it be otherwise because he created everything and he created everyone and since then he hasn't given away deed or title to anything or to anyone now he does entrust a tiny little sliver of all that belongs to him to me and to you for a tiny little sliver of time which is the life that we're living presently but that's a trust it's not a deed it's not a title And just like when you take your money and you bring it to a money manager and you entrust it to the management of this person, you reasonably expect that that person is now going to take that and he's going to use it for your purposes and to advance your cause and to fulfill your mission. I think so it is with the Lord. He gives it to us and he's like, hey, my purposes, my cause, my mission. And just like you don't mind that your money manager makes some money managing your money, you understand that's the way that it works and it's a a worthy service the lord understands that we have needs the lord understands that we have expenses the lord understands that we have to live and provide for ourselves and our family and store up for the future and retirement and all of these other things he understands he speaks to those kinds of things in the bible speaks to being industrious to storing up all of these things he he gets that but living off some of it is very different from taking the whole of it and then pretending as if he doesn't exist if your money manager did that to you, he'd meet your lawyer, right? I mean, that would, be, that would be a problem. So the first thing God says about your treasure is that it's not your treasure. But then the second thing that he says is to give it away. And here's what I've discovered. It is super easy to give money away when it's somebody else's money. So I'm going to give you an example, okay? This is a picture of our old van, I told you that's how we get rid of cars, right? We had that van for 16 years, 215,488 miles. I feel like, I get emotional about our van, I feel like we raised our kids in that van. That van became, I'll be plain, a turd in the end. I would get in the driveway and I would take oil and I would pour it in the top of the oil on the engine, right? And then I would watch it run out the bottom. I'm not lying. If you had to go to the store in our van, you had to put oil in the top and then race to the store and you would leave an oil track out the driveway and down the street. And then when you're done in the store, you put more oil in and then you drive it back. I still have a big oil stain in my driveway, which is kind of irritating because I can't get rid of it. But, but when we got the van, it was amazing. So here's how we got the van. Before we had the van, we had another turd. It was nice when we got it, but it was like 12 years old at the time. And it was in a Suzy rodeo. And somebody actually took a BB gun and shot out one of the triangular windows toward the back of our Suzy rodeo. And I took it to the dealership and I said, Hey, you know, I need to replace this window. The guy laughed at me. He's like, we don't even have that part. Like, I can't even get that window, you know, go to the junkyard, which maybe is where you ought to leave it. You know, go to a specialty glass store. He told me. So I tried it. It didn't work, but because again, if it works, we drive it. That's the deal. So anyway, we got $100 for that Isuzu Rodeo when we traded it in, and I felt like we were robbing the bank. It was awesome. But we loaded up the Isuzu Rodeo. My son was not even born at that point. Morgan, our oldest, who's like 25 next week, um, was maybe five or six. Haley was maybe a year old. And we went down to Miami, which is where my parents live, and we had Thanksgiving dinner with them. And so we came out of the, out into the driveway where the the rodeo was, and we load our kids up in the car seats and whatever, and we drive away. And then about five minutes later, my dad calls me and he goes, hey, he goes, I don't ever want to see you put your family in that thing again. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, every time you leave here in that thing, like, he won't even talk about it. Like, it doesn't have a name. And it had a name. But anyway... I, I'm like, he goes, I can't sleep. He said, I'm thinking you're going to get stuck on I-95. He said, you need to get rid of that thing, and I'm going to buy you a new car. So here's the story. Just keep driving clunkers until your parents buy you a new car. <laughs> Little tip, heavenly treasure. Anyway, he goes, I'm going to buy you a new car. And he goes, I, you know, I got a guy that works for me, and I was riding around with him this week in his Honda Odyssey van, and it's really a nice van, and you should just go get one of these vans and I said okay so we went down to the Honda dealership and we started looking at the vans and we had very you know frankly modest expectations I'm thinking I'm not trying to you know kill my dad here on the offer so we don't need leather seats and we don't need the electronic doors that that slide open when you push a little button on the key fob and we don't need the $1,700 feature that is the entertainment system that you could watch DVDs on and that was like a that was a circular thing with movies so anyway (laughs) Google it later, you know, like, we don't need all the bells and whistles, you know, just, just give us a van. And they're like, we don't have a van that plain. You have to order that van. So my dad calls and says, what's going on with the van? And I said, well, we're going to have to order the van because, and I explained the deal. And he's like, well, do they have one with all the stuff? I said, yeah. He said, get that. You like the color? like, yeah. He said, look, here's the deal. Here's what I know. You keep your car for forever. You're going to have all kinds of kids in and out of this thing for the next 15 years, which proved to be true. Like, do you want McDonald's French fries on your cloth seats? Those fabric seats are going to look terrible three years from now. Get leather. And Beth, you know, she's got a baby in one arm and 14 other things in her other arm and something on her head. If she has a little key fob and she can just open the door, like what else is she going to do? Use her teeth? I'm like, but what about the the DVD thing? Like the screen comes down. And I said, that just feels kind of extravagant. And he's like, listen, one trip to North Carolina where your kids are totally dialed into Nemo or something, that thing's going to pay for itself. (laughs) We, We probably did 40 of those trips. So where I'm going with this is I was super generous with Holman Honda. Like, I mean, generous. I remember how much it cost. It was like $32,000. The only downside to this van was that new pastor guy's wife is driving the Mac Daddy of vans. Like, I, ne- I wanted to put a sticker on it that said, my dad bought this for us, really. Don't think that, you know. Okay. But it didn't faze me to give it away. Sign the deal, not nervous at all, because I had a father who was able and willing to pay for the van, and he did. He paid for it. It was great. It was fun to spend his money. You have a father. He owns everything you own, and I know you want to argue with that, but it it doesn't work. Oh, you're like, oh, I worked hard for it. Yeah, okay, so where did your life come from? How about your energy? How about your intelligence? How about your creative abilities? How about every opportunity that's ever come across your desk? Where did it come from? Every breath, I mean, if you just want to break it down, is a gift. Look, everything you have is His. And He comes to you and He says, I promise to meet your needs. Your needs are different from your wants. That's part of what we're dealing with. What we treasure out here tells us what we treasure in here. And this is what he wants. But I'll meet your needs, so I want you to have some fun giving away my money. And I want you to give it away this way, and I want you to give it away this way, and I want you to give it away this way. I want you to deal with the psychological scar tissue that's developed on your heart. Let me undo that for you and know that I've got your back. It's not a bad deal. Oh, and here's the best part. When you do that, with my wealth, God says, in this little sliver of time that you're living right now, I will reward you (laughs) for forever. It's pretty cool. So as we transition into our time of reflection, I want to ask you some questions, and the first one deals with the heart, right? It's what he's after. Does he have it? Do you you have it? Well, let's ask it differently. Okay, so there's a throne in your heart. Something or someone is on it. Who's on it? What's on it? Because Jesus is like, listen, I'm on it or I'm not. (laughs) But I don't share it. It belongs to me. And as long as money is your God, you will be anxious. Anxious. It's inevitable. You'll never have enough. You'll never own enough to be somebody. But if I'm the king of your heart, I got it. You can relax. Second question is, as your wealth is increased, have you become more or less self-centered, more or less entitled, more or less the guy that pulls up to the stop sign and goes, you know what? I'm more important than all of you people. So now I'm going to go. I mean, you can direct traffic instead. That is helpful. But, but really, as your wealth has increased, have you become more or less sensitive to and responsive to the needs of others? As your wealth has increased, have you given a greater or a lesser percentage of it away? Are you content... With what you have or are you chasing more? And if you're chasing more, why are you chasing it? What's, what's motivating it? What are, you, what are you hoping to get in the end if you gain it? And what are you sacrificing to get it? Do you look to your, to your wealth or to God for your security or for your significance? Super easy to do. And remember, it blinds us I think we don't even realize it. And then here's the last one. When you die and leave this earth, will you have more treasure in heaven or will you leave more treasure behind here? Why don't you guys stand and and let's pray together. We're going to have our prayer team members just kind of go to either side of the room. Feel free to slip out and talk with one of them and pray with one of them and And I'm going to just give some space in the prayer, okay? So that's like your moment where you can just talk to the Lord. Just kind of want to direct us through it. So, Father, we bring to you our hearts, and we bring them with a trembling hand for fear, (laughs) for fear of what you might find, for for fear of what it might mean. And yet we confess that we are anxious, that we often feel like nobody, that we often wonder if we have enough, that our insecurities overwhelm us and keep us up at night. We're not doing well with them the way they are. And so, our gracious God, we bring to you our hearts and ask that you might heal them. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to behold you, the eyes of our hearts, as safe as loving, as gracious, as powerful, as the all-wealthy God who relates to us through faith in Jesus as our Father who loves us. And so, Lord, I want to take a moment and just confess individually. Like I want us to confess our greed. I want us to confess our psychological scar tissue want us to take a moment and to confess who or what is really on the throne of our hearts. And Lord, if it is not you, then to repent of that and turn from it, that you might take up your rightful place. So just take a moment and talk to the Lord about that. The Bible comes to us, and it, it tells us that we have a God who, when we confess our sin to Him, who when we bring ourselves to Him, is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin. Just to free us from all of us, our unrighteousness, that we might walk away not guilty, not full of shame, but full of relief and full of joy and full of love that's the effect of the gospel in our hearts it is as Matt said to learn to love what God loves so Lord we take our hearts to you and we ask you to forgive them we pray that you would fill them with your spirit we ask them that Lord that you would take and make them like unto your own help us to love what you love and who you love And let us know the joy of having a Father who has given us everything, who will walk with us, who will direct us, and who will allow us to be generous with his wealth. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.